Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, where we break down all the important news in health tech every single week. We are joined today by Dr. Derek Kaur. Welcome. He is an NHS doctor and a clinical oncologist, and just this year has also founded his own company, Adopt-A-Doc, which is a social enterprise connecting health tech companies with clinical expertise to help bridge the gap between solution developers and end users, which is a perfect follow-on from a lot of the discussions we were having last week and even across this week about bringing clinicians and end users very much into the development of products. So welcome. How are you doing, Derek? I'm doing absolutely fine. Thank you so much, Jessica and James and Hugh, for bringing me on. It's been a big, it's been an absolute pleasure to join you guys and an absolute honor. A uh, big fan of the Health Tech Pigeon podcast and really happy to be here. You are most, most welcome. James, Hugh, how have your weeks been? Good. Busy. Busy. Lots of, uh, lots of things going on. A uh, really good event uh, for the Summit Health Tech Talks with Google Cloud earlier in the week on. Uh, on subjects that be very relevant to today's chat. So, you know, excited to be here now at the end of the week. James, how about you? Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Good event. Enjoyed it. Um, and I think some of that, yeah, as I say, I think some of those stories are going to uh, crop up in what we talk about today. But yeah, uh, the shorter weeks always sound like a great idea until the same amount of work has to be crammed into the shorter amount of time. But um, we get through. We get through. I, and I think it's really interesting because I, I saw that the event was specifically on AI and medical imaging and the challenges that occurs with it. And uh, I, how apt if we're going to speak about AI today? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I saw the story. And uh, well, I think, Hugh, you put it in our channel, didn't you? It was like the the, the morning of <laughs> the event. Um, but yeah, ideal, ideal. Well, without further ado, I think that leads us on very nicely to our first story, which is brought to us by Andrew Gregory, the health editor at The Guardian. The headline here is that new, a new artificial intelligence tool can accurately identify cancer. Now, this looks like it's some research that has been brought to us by a really impressive cohort. So it involves experts from the Royal Marsden, the Institute of Cancer Research, Imperial College London, um, who else have we got? NICE, the NIHR. Everyone who is someone in in kind of cancer care seems to be involved in this. Um, But Derek, this is in and around your area of expertise. What do you make of this? Well, first and foremost, I must say that this is a very important study. It is one of quite one of its kind because it's completely NHS run, completely funded publicly rather than a partnership with a commercial entity. So, you know, there's no conflict of interest there. Uh, is it a, a study first of its kind? Not exactly, because there have been lots of trials and lots of previous studies that have developed AI algorithms to detect cancers. So that's not really what it was really addressing. Now, as you would know, how things are in the press versus how things are in the actual clinical field is a bit different. And I believe the authors have made, made it very clear that this is still a very early phase study and not something that can be that will revolutionize how everything goes. And there, there are lots of things we can talk about this study as well, reading through the entire academic paper. First off, massive props to the entire team from the Royal Marston uh, for actually coordinating this project. And I can see it was spearheaded by doctors as well, which is quite, quite impressive. 
Now, the only thing to say about, and I, and I have done quite a few consultations with Adopt Adopt with AI companies regarding the viability of using artificial intelligence in daily clinical practice. Now, few things that we need to pick apart from this paper, and I, I won't go into full journal club mode because that's probably too complex and take too long. But uh, a few things to consider is, first of all, this is a retrospective study. So using data from 2020 to 2022 on a cohort of patients, quite a significant sum. Uh, secondly, it's a multi-site study. So it uses five uh, clinical centers, which is very good as well. And really what it is trying to do, this algorithm is trying to identify within a very gray area, a subset of patients that are at higher risk of developing malignancy. So uh, lung cancer specifically. So it is not to diagnose the uh, run of the mill chest x-ray has a uh, suspicious looking nodule and oh, see what it is. It's actually talking about a specific subset of patients that have a nodules that are big enough, not quite sure what do we do with it. Because really the best clinical practice, the gold standard in these suspicious cases will be to do a lung biopsy. And that is a very, very uh, invasive procedure. It's it, it does involve cardiothoracics that's very high risk of causing problems like pneumothorax and injury. So this, this working group has came together to develop artificial intelligence to assess this gray area, to see if there's a better way forward. Because the current practice of how we deal things in the, the gray area, aside from doing a biopsy, is to do, do a score called the Brock score or the Herder score. And this, the Herder score involves getting a PET scan, a follow-up PET scan following the initial CT scan. And that, as you can imagine, PET scans are really hard to come by, really expensive, long waiting lines, uh, and there is a real financial and economic implication to this. And that's why this, this algorithm was done. The study was very well run, really not much criticism to the methodology done in, in the process. But the challenge that we all have to understand, and this is something that we really have to understand, why 87% of artificial intelligence research never translates into real life, is the same thing. And this is something the authors have said in the limitation bit. They had to develop their own segmentation pipeline to get all this data in. So it's not an organic integrated pipeline with five computers, with five centers where doctors can just ooh, put a patient data in and get the results out. They had to do a lot of manual data processing, lots of uh, pre-processing work to make sure that the algorithm can understand what it's looking at. So it is a very research academic setting and something that's a bit more clunky in the real life setting. Just to put highlight a single point, just, just to let you guys understand that hurdle of how things go. In the BIR AI Congress, there was a very famous quote that was passed around. And a radiologist has very famously said before, if this, if this algorithm requires me to make one extra click, I'm not going to use it. And it really just goes to show that if an AI algorithm is very clunky, doesn't fit into clinical workflow, actually adds way more work than it does... Uh, to help the radiologist, it's not going to be adopted. It's not going to be procured. And I think there's a lot to be said about that. But all in all, a good paper, a very good starting point, they will need to then branch out to do prospective studies where involving real-time patients over a long period of time, essentially a multi-arm randomized clinical control trial, if that's possible, to really validate the impact of this uh, algorithm 
because what they what they're quoting is that the, the area under the curve, which is a uh, a proxy marker of how good an algorithm is, is quite good, really. But it's in this very specific setting. How does it translate to the real world? It has to be done through a prospective study. Yeah, a lot of what you said there, it really aligns with, I think, the conversations that we've been having through this week, as I said, when we've been talking about the use of the of AI in, in medical imaging. And you know, one of the things we talked about accuracy and, and the importance of that. We also talked about, you know, what does this mean in comparison to uh, standard clinical practice? And so, for example, I saw that it wasn't in the um, actual article itself, but in the paper, it said that tested against a radiologist, um, the accuracy for the radiologist came out as 65% versus then obviously the AI, AI algorithm, which is you know significantly higher, was 87%. Um, however, it's still absolutely not, its purpose is not as a diagnostic tool. It's about that decision support. And I do wonder, you know, talking about, you know, where you were mentioning there, the translation into clinical practice and and actually so much of the research into uh, AI algorithms doesn't translate into real life practice because the practical elements have yet to be addressed. And I wonder whether it sounds like here, so for example, clearly the process needs to be streamlined to make it much, much easier. You know, this is this has been used in an academic setting, which is not reflected, reflective of real life. But if that could then be streamlined, what is the challenge perhaps where, for example, you know, say there is that extra click for a radiologist in this process, but ultimately that extra click from the radiologist saves time for another clinical team. So if it's saving in biopsies, it's saving in perhaps surgical procedures. How? What is the kind of, I guess, challenge there in terms of balancing that out? Because ultimately you're increasing... It, it's not quite robbing Peter to pay Paul, but it, there is clearly a increase in workload for one part of the service, even if it's just a small amount. There's still an increase in one place to make efficiencies in another place. And actually, when you do economic evaluations, it's not. It's usually around one certain service, and so when it's across a service, I guess that adds a layer of complexity and. It's difficult to bring all of the clinicians as on that journey, perhaps. I think, Jessica, you've really nailed it in the head here. So to really under, understand the value proposition of an AI algorithm, is we, one really has to see what the evidence is behind that. And this is something I've been write, writing a lot in LinkedIn recently, producing carousels as well. So to get the radiologist to take on the extra work uh, of doing the AI side of things and to accept the extra risk as well, because we are taking a new technology to make a very important decision here. Because we're not talking about chest infection, we're not talking about pneumothorax, or we're talking about the possibility of developing cancer and whether should we intervene earlier or not. So this is a very serious medical condition. And in order to get everyone on board, real hardcore clinical evidence is needed. So as I mentioned, they really need to prove with with a series of time, over a series of time scale, that this product that we are going to that's going to change our workflow is something that is accurate, is safe, and is something that we can adapt to our clinical workflow. If say this product is fully validated in a prospective clinical trial and is validated across multiple sites in the United Kingdom, 
then yes, I suspect people will be like, all right, this is a fantastic tool. Let's use it. Um, and then the conversation would then have to come over creating new pathways and to, to, to agree upon the entire multidisciplinary team to say, okay, we're going to use this AI and integrate this to our pathway. How are we going to work and live with this? A very good example will be the Gemini trial that's running up in Edinburgh right now, where a company is essentially creating a software that helps breast screening. So the way breast screening works now is they need two radiologists to agree on things. So radiology one, radiology two, and they have to both agree that, okay, this is safe. There's no problems here. Patient can move on. So what they've de de devised essentially is an AI algorithm that can replace one of the radiologists. So there'll still be a human in the loop, but there's another AI algorithm that helps it. So essentially you have the workload of radiologists overnight. And really the study really showed how they created a whole pathway to accommodate such a trial. And again, it's still very in the early adopter phase and it's not quite in mainstream use yet. But conversations have to be had. But first and foremost, evidence needs to be generated. Then conversations have to be had with the clinical pathways, how to adapt things accordingly. Then we'll see how mainstream adoption. So there are, there are steps in place that we have to go through first. How far does individual clinician resistance push back this is an advancement. Like there's that study from, I think it's last year where radiologists were asked about how much they trust AI. And they said they trust it so far uh, that, you know, they were far more likely to trust it if they agreed with it. Well, I was just going to say that actually, that, you know, it's easy for you to be excited about this, right? Because this is yeah. what you're interested in. You're familiar with the technologies, yes. but actually what is the perception of radiologists and oncologists and, and other clinicians more broadly who are not familiar with if the I... potential of, of AI wow. and are inherently maybe more, you know, risk averse to it, shall we say? Like, yeah. how, do we, how, do we, how do we address that? Yeah, so let me tell you what I'm seeing in the field and, and real life and daily life. So obviously I went to this big AI conference down in London the atmosphere was electric. Everyone there was an AI proponent. Everyone there was leaving, breathing AI and really excited. But, you know, that's 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 an echo chamber, isn't it? Everyone's so excited. It's a very self-selected group. But when you come out of it and you actually sit in your registrar room and you're speaking to consultants and you realize, hmm, not many people understand what AI is and what AI can do. ChatGPT has been fantastic in putting AI into the general psyche of humankind. But then again, everyone's kind of thinking like, oh, AI is a bit of a dodgy large language model, can hallucinate, and they don't really understand that there's different kinds of AI. And in fact, the AI that's been used in the radiology uh, setting is often not, doesn't hallucinate. So there is, the truth of the matter is there is the majority of clinicians that are not very well versed with what AI is what it can do, what it is, what are the limitations of it. We have no idea what it is. There is no course in medical school that talks about it, uh, nor at least in a widespread fashion. There's no digital health modules that, that, that familiarizes ourselves to understand this whole validating process. Clinicians understand a language and the language is evidence. Right? That's one thing we fully understand. We understand randomized control trials. We understand meta-analysis. We understand systematic reviews. Very, very few artificial intelligence solutions have done multi-site randomized control trials, certainly not in the field of cancer as well. So it is something that 
everyone's a bit cautious about. And I think there's a lot more work to do. And that's why, why, I'm, why I'm doing what I'm doing by writing, breeding, creating cells, doing adopt the dog, is to try to bridge this gap between the technology side of things and the actual clinical adoption side of things. There's a massive gap here to be bridged. But I believe very strongly, whether we like it or not, healthcare AI is going to zoom, zoom uh, into the future and it will, will drag us all along with it. And it's it's really our, our impetus to catch up to it and to really use this very powerful tool. James, you led that conversation with... Uh... Ben from Humor and Katerina from Oxford Heartbeat. Have you got any reflections from uh, that discussion? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things that I would add based on, well, just additionally to what you guys have said. In that, Derek, you you talked about the the difference between where the technology is and where the adoption is. That's a concept that I think is is really kind of crystallizing for me that there is a technology frontier which is pushed by the computer scientists. and the technology companies themselves, and they are pushing the frontier of what's possible. And that is going at speed. That is going at real pace. That is really advancing quickly. Yeah, right. For those that can't see this, which is pretty much everyone, that, yeah, Derek's upwards uh, motion of his hand there is rapid. Yeah, that, that frontier is moving rapidly. But there's a frontier behind that, which is the adoption frontier. And... For me, this concept of a technology frontier and adoption frontier is one that I think I'm going to talk to a lot in future because the frontier element of that suggests they are moving and actually the technology one going quicker and the adoption one going slower gives me a visual in my head of, okay, I actually think that this is a... This is a visualization I can now articulate much better because there are factors that influence those frontiers going at different speeds. The technology frontier is allowed to go as quickly as it can. There is very little friction to a tech company with developers and and entrepreneurs and everyone in between to just advance through technology. There's very little stopping that. There are a few conversations at the moment, you know, the likes of Elon Musk and similar that thinks the same as him about capping AI and capping the development of AI. But but at the moment, as we sit here today, technology can just go at incredible pace. And and I don't know what arguments people would have to stop it, actually. I'm not sure. Especially in in what we're talking about now with with AI and, and radiology and imaging. But actually there is potentially an argument to redeploy some of that resource that's actually going to pushing the technology frontier to actually addressing the adoption frontier. And, I, and my biggest reflection over this week and, and having these chats, especially on stage at the, on Wednesday, is that there are some factors that go into the, the potential speeding up of the adoption frontier that I think are tangible and are almost the tick box of, are we doing enough in all of these areas that can move the adoption frontier? And so I've written a few down here as you were talking. So the digital readiness of the organization, the infrastructure, the platforms that they have that these AI solutions can be built on, are we, are we doing enough there? The digital literacy of all staff, their ability to actually understand the technology and use it. Trust then comes from that. Are the staff going to trust that you guys have talked about it? The workflows that they're in, is the organization ready to actually deploy these in functional workflows? That 
makes a difference? Is this the first time it's used in this way, using this particular part of the pathway versus another one? If it's done before, it makes it easier the next time. Are we doing enough there? And how all of that then sits on this bed of regulation and how the regulation transforms into the government governance of an organization, um, the information governance, quite frankly, of an organization. And so, you know, where all of those things are going into this point of adopt, uh, this adoption frontier of whatever speed of technology is going forwards, frankly, it's capped and limited by wherever this adoption frontier is. And it's very different per site, per organization, per country, per, it, you know, very different, I imagine, in, in lots of different places. But th- that's a huge part of this conversation, which is we can all get very excited about the technology frontier going forwards. We, we, of course we can. It's easy to get excited about autonomous cars and, and, and AI large language models. And it's easy for us to get excited about this. But I think for those of us that have been in health tech a long time, we only really get excited when the adoption frontier pushes forwards. And there's a huge, you know, if, 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 if something hit the headlines that 46 NHS trusts are now bought into the same information governance principle so that once you get through one, you get through all 46. Well, that isn't going to get headlines in The Guardian unless it's got a nice angle to it. Really, that's that's going to make massive waves in the actual health tech entrepreneurship community because all of a sudden, that's real change to the adoption frontier. It's changed to the speed and it's changed to how 50 million quid of VC money is actually spent. It can actually be spent in different places rather than just the time, energy, effort, resource that's needed to get over the site-to-site issue. I mean, that, and that's just one of the things going into the adoption material, right? So what, what that was one of my reflections. The other one, I can get through a bit quicker than that, but the other one is that I think we prob- I think what we need to do when we're talking about the comparisons between technology and humans is actually abandon that completely. Because the, to even suggest we're comparing technology against humans, comparing AI algorithms against radiologists, to be specific, to even enter into that is suggesting that one day it will be anything other than a human using AI. So I think the inflammatory language of algorithm versus clinician just needs to get go out the window. And I think what the way that we need to actually practically change the way we talk about AI is to say, rather than radiologist versus algorithm, I think it's radiologist with algorithm versus radiologist with current tools. And let's just accept that it's a radiologist going to be using this. It's a service that's going to be using this. So instead of saying 65% of radiologists or radiologist has 65% accuracy and this AI algorithm has 95, it's saying radiologists currently operate to the best of their ability and can achieve 65% capacity with the tools they currently have. But if we think about this algorithm, radiologists are going to be able to achieve 95% plus accuracy if we allow them to use this as a tool. So I think it's that. I think that's the language that has to be used in order to just throw this competitive nonsense out the window and actually think about how is this actually going to be used. And then we can advance the adoption frontier and the technology frontier at a similar pace. Just my opinion. No, I think I think that's absolutely fair to say, James. I think that's very insightful. The adoption and technology frontier thing has been going on for quite a while. I think it, AI has really been around about five, five, six years-ish. And 
but from my consultations with Adopt a Dog, speaking to some very big companies, and also from reading all these things, the one thing that people don't understand is a lot of the technology people, they're very excited. They can do something. They can build something quite easily, buy data from insurance or buy data from the NHS or buy data from private companies in the United States, churn out this very beautiful looking algorithm. And then they go through a big study, cost a few million dollars. And then when they've created that algorithm and they say, here, clinician, have a use of it. And the clinician's like, nah, I'm not going to use this at all because this will generate far more work to, for me and has actually, make, actually increased my cost way more as well. And such conversations really strikes me as like, hmm, I could have told you that in five minutes, I could have saved you three years of research in five minutes. I could have just told you that straight up in an unbiased, fair way uh, with no conflict of interest at all. And these conversations are not being had because, you know, they can do something. There is some money to do something and it looks nice to do something, but they've not stopped to consider, hey, is this something that will actually be used? Will something come out of it beyond just an academic paper? Can I really make a real difference in this? And we're talking about real money, real serious hardcore cash and real serious talent being diverted to something that's not as useful as compared to trying to push for an adoption point of view as well. So lots of work to be done here, lots of work to be done here. And hey, we'll see how it goes. Sounds like some incredibly encouraging research led by some real experts and innovators in the space, but there is some way to go before we see this coming into clinical practice and there is a big gap for us to address to make sure that these innovations that can genuinely make a difference can make that difference. So on to our next story. So that last story was the perfect segue into this one because James just talked a little bit there about some barriers to getting innovative solutions into the hands of clinicians. And we can't talk about that topic without talking about regulation. And that's exactly what this next story is about. So the headline here is that NICE, the CQC, health re- the Health Research Authority and the MHRA have come together in a multi-agency collaboration to launch an AI and digital regulation service. Now, it's billed as four partners, one service that recognizes the difficulty of navigating regulations, especially when tech is evolving so quickly. What it says is that it is existing to help innovators to understand what regulations to meet and when, and for health and care professionals to feel more comfortable in using new technology. Now, it's funded by the NHS AI Lab, um, which is one of the few things I think we've so far seen to come out of the NHS AI Lab. So well done to them. And it exists to be the central source of regulation and best practice guidance from across regulators, public bodies, and will be updated when the law is as well. So I think it sounds incredibly promising. um, But what do we think needs to happen for this to actually have value in practice. Derek, what, what's your view on this from that healthcare professional perspective in terms of making this useful for you? I think this is a, well, this is a very odd thing to say that regulation is actually exciting <laughs> um, <laughs> because this, this was really announced during the conference that I was in and the, one of the head of, the, of this program was actually talking a lot about it and how we can bring different stakeholders into it. 
Now, why I think regulation is incredibly, incredibly important here is to help bridge this gap between clinicians being suspicious and dodgy about new AI tools and for companies to say, hey guys, we've done our homework, uh, you can trust us. Now, why I think regulations is incredibly important is because we first have to understand that NICE have created an evidence standard framework, which is a series of best practices that say, okay, these are the best things you guys can do. You guys should do it. Uh, but the companies are completely not incentivized to do it at all because it's not mandatory. They don't have to do it. And they're just like, nah. And we have to, we have, we have to understand the backdrop of which evidence generation, generating clinical evidence for, let's say your AI algorithm is an incredibly expensive uh, process as well. And it takes a long time. Uh, at, from the day you, re- you submit your research proposal to the day you publish your data in a, in a well-reputable journal might take three to five years. That's the current reality of things. And a lot of companies are trying to skirt this. They're trying to like, eh, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And certainly from my consultations, I've seen that mm, some companies are not trying to take this as seriously as they should with very good reasons as well. Um, but having a, a proper regulations that say, hey guys, you guys need to do this, 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 and this before you can even enter the conversation about being procured or being deployed in the clinical setting. Or you have to submit a, a proposal before you get your regulation, before you can do any clinical investigations on the field. I think this will help make things clearer for everyone. They say, okay, you got to do this. This is the incentive for you to do this. And because everyone has done their due diligence and their homework, we can all trust this AI algorithm or this company is not a bad actor or a cowboy trying to just force their way through it. And, and we see a lot of that. We see a lot of that. So yes, I think this is a, a step in the right direction. And, I, and, I, and what, why I'm quite hopeful is because the tone that the leaders of this conversation are really quite collaborative. They're really trying to help. So it's not like, a, here's my regulation, you do this. It's more of let's have a chat about what is sensible and what is it's feasible for artificial intelligence. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's definitely a, a big step forward in terms of having that collaboration and hopefully hopefully providing some clarity to something that innovators, services, commissioners, clinicians alike all find confusing, clear as mud. Um, I think I was having a look at this earlier, and there's there's not a lot of detail around exactly how this is going to manifest and exactly what sort of support and services they'll be providing. Um, So I think it'll be interesting to kind of follow that and and see kind of what does come next. But from your perspective, in terms of like that practical support that would be really useful to someone like you, or, you know, more broadly, let's talk about the NHS perspective um, in terms of commissioning. What what do you think that that really needs to look like? What are you hoping to see in terms of the support that perhaps is going to be provided to that, that, that cohort? Lots of things, lots of things, really. I think, as you've very clearly mentioned, there are four key peoples here that are involved, the clinicians, the developers, the procurement, and the regulators. A lot of education, a lot of awareness is required in this field. Everyone needs to kind of know what's going on. Uh, a very clear, simple to read, understand web page about what's what's exactly the standards is helpful. Clear standards such as the DTAC, the GDPR, UKCA marking, things like this needs to exist for artificial intelligence solutions in the United Kingdom so that people can just say, ah, that's the mark. I can trust that mark. Let's let's just carry on with it. It's just like the ISO mark as well. It's something that needs to be, 
it needs to have a brand. It needs to grow in trust in the public's eye, in the, not just in the UK, just EU as well, so that people can just say, hey, as long as I know that you've done this thing, I know you've at least done go through all the necessary steps. Now, from the innovator's point of view, I can only imagine that it'll be nice to have people that will help walk them through the entire process, tell them that, okay, these are the things that you will need, ideally in an earlier stage. So we want a lot of this help to be given at the earlier stage, not when they've already developed everything and then they have to do re retrofit all the data back to the requirements because that's going to be an absolute nightmare. You have to redo your studies, rewrite your papers just to fit this uh, criteria. So it's ideally should be for early stage people who have not yet developed anything or are, are still have developed something but not yet uh, gone, gone through the whole evidence generation process to walk them through and say, hey, uh, for you to get past our regulations, these are the steps that you need to take and we can provide you support in this side, this side of things as well. And if there's any problems, let's get in touch and we'll, we'll, we'll keep having a conversation about this. So it's more about being open and being accessible and, and not creating barriers uh, for, for innovators. And what I've heard very interestingly during the conference is that the FDA in the United States have actually done this quite well. They've actually done this quite well compared to the, the EU MDR and the MHRA, which is a bit strange uh, because the FDA is notoriously known to be very obstructive, but they somehow have changed their tune within this past few years and innovators are really flocking to the United States because it's so much easier to get their medical device approved and the regulatory pathway is so clear, it's much faster, it's cheaper as well. So there is there is a template for us to follow uh, and I think... I think there's lots of, we can certainly do better. One of the things that Katerina actually said on Wednesday from um, Oxford Heartbeat, she was, she, she had, was talking about the difference between FDA and MHRA and how you, you essentially go in blind in the UK when you're submitting for your regulatory approval. Whereas, you know, you can't, you can't kind of ask questions. You can't get any kind of consultation with the MHRA themselves. Whereas with the FDA, you can have a pre-submission, which involves a one-hour meeting where you get to sit down with someone from the FDA and ultimately have a practice run at your submission and ask questions um, and have an open discussion with them. Um, and I think, you know, what it sounds like and, and hopefully what we'll get from this new collaboration is perhaps more of that, as you say, that openness and that two-way conversation to help decipher some of this and make that information more accessible and translatable to whether it's innovators or you know clinical teams and that kind of thing as well so perhaps that, perhaps that's that's where it's gonna maybe manifest but james hugh have you got any thoughts on this yeah so I, I looked at this cynically to begin with because i think any any new kind of hey this looks like it's going to change everything you know if something looks too good to be true it probably isn't um and that's the cynicism that I think is is relatively healthy when it comes to this sort of thing. Because whilst clarity is good, doubling, doubling up on work is not. And so you don't want to have to be in a situation where you've got another checklist to do, another load of things to do and that kind of thing. But I have, I've looked at the NHS England website. I've looked on the, uh, the guidance for developers as it relates to this program. And actually this looks pretty interesting because this 
it probably does exist in other places, and then there, I'm sure there are you know consultancies and private companies that that do this uh, very well. But in terms of knowing where you are as a health tech company, and then what do you have to actually do? This is this is a great start, and they make very clear this is a new service. It's in beta. It needs feedback, all that sort of stuff. But if you go to the regulations for medical devices, say. It just has a load of stages. So idea stage, tech development stage, market ready, placing technology on the market, when it's in use, how to update it, and regulations that govern. So it's got all these different stages in chronological order of where you'd be. Now, when you go to the drop downs for these, there's a there's a list of sort of 20 different steps per thing, right? So if I click on technology idea, there's now 20 steps and, and they're either de- declared as best practice or required. So simple stuff, creating a value proposition but is, is best practice, but then required, determine the intended purpose of your medical device. And it says, why is it important? Well, it says you need an intended purpose statement, so an intended use statement often called, to place your medical device on the UK health and social care market. You can then click into this. And whilst it's in beta and the page is currently under review and all that sort of stuff, it goes through the MHRA's published new guidance on crafting an intended use statement. And here's all the stuff you need to know. And step one, two, three, four, like, so there's, there's steps on steps on steps here. So there's, there's, and, and this for me personally is the first time I'm seeing this in such granular detail from organizations that are reputable to the tune of NHS England, the MHRA, CQC, et cetera. But actually, the, these are the organizations that are going to be marking this homework. So it seems like this might be incredibly useful. I'm still reticent to say that it definitely is going to really move the needle on stuff. Because, But I think that as a collective of the health tech community and digital health community, this is the information that we've sort of muddled together thus far. And actually, to have it just so clearly laid out is really interesting. So if I go beyond idea to say tech development, the force, the first four things here are required. So getting a UKCA mark, meeting quality management system requirements, meeting risk management requirements, medical devices, meeting the design requirements of the UK medical device regulations, and then some best practice stuff, designing clinical studies. But then does it need a clinical investigation? Required. Demonstrating clinical performance? Required. And if you click on demonstrating clinical performance, it talks about obviously why, but then how you practically do it, defining what state-of-the-art means through a literature review, in-house testing, prospective pre-market trials, post-market clinical follow-up studies, all of these things you can click on to, to then go into more detail. And so just on a, I like practical stuff and this feels really practical because the amount of times over the last five, six, seven, eight years, the people have tried to have phone calls with me that they try to get this information out of me, assuming that I will know. I mean, I, I've not known. Now I just have a website to just direct these people to me. I look on here um, because there's probably like a, a 200 steps here that you just go through one by one. It's almost incredible that for something like DTAC, where you yeah. go onto the NHS pages on how to be compliant with DTAC, there is a checklist that you download and you complete and basically nothing else. Um, and yeah, they've had DTAC running for the last 18 months. It replaced something in itself. How is there not something similar for all the different points on that that just sets out, this is required, this is how you do it, this is um, you know, the way you can prove it and everything like that. It It feels like it's incredible that this resource is here for AI and, and 
you know, really emerging technology, but not there for something almost far more simple. I would like to make a point in saying that um, it's amazing that things are going down to such a granular detail and everyone knows what is now expected of them. Uh, well, into a certain degree, but there's also this element where it can also start to create a lot of question marks as well. Like, okay, clinical evidence. How do I how do I do a randomized control trial? How do I do a literature review? And you know, uh, James, you and I we're both medically trained, so you know, kind of it, it sounds like a second language to us. It, it, it's something that we take for granted that we understand what that means. You know, we understand what's how to evaluate. Even if you don't, if you, if you present the solutions, if I say I give you an app to to assess right now, you will kind of be able to piece together in your mind. Okay, how would I design the study to prove the evidence and etc. etc. A lot of these things that are put out, uh, it's great that it's been put out, but I suspect there will be a lot be a lot of further questions that come on from these two hundred steps. Like, hmm, how do I do that exactly? Uh, how does it look like in real life? And uh, it becomes like, uh... Yeah, and then how do you actually get it, which is the entrepreneurial bit as well. Yeah. I think that that's where that's where it gets interesting. I think one of the, the consequences of this will actually be a relatively positive one. I think will actually be that for those people that have an idea that they want to do something in health tech and then they look at that, I think it'll actually put a lot of people off. Oh, yeah. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Because I think, especially when you look at the wellness market and just, I'll knock up a wellness app and just stick it on the app store, when actually they're talking about diagnosis, treatment, like they're in they're in medical device, not only territory, but they are firmly like in, in medical device territory. I think for those, for some of those people that are perhaps there naively rather than out of ignorance, I think this is the sort of thing that people will just end up pointing to. It's something that investors can quite easily go through for due diligence, by the way, as well, which I think is a, a fantastic consequence because for non-health tech investors that are specific, so for the more generalist investors that actually invest in health tech, this is the sort of stuff that they won't know naturally. I know a lot of health tech investors will, uh, but even for them, this goes in more detail. And I think if you're doing clinical due diligence on a health tech investment, you could just pick out any one of those steps and just test the founder's knowledge of like, did you know you need to do X? And the good founders will say yes, the bad ones will just say no, and they won't get investment. The market of those that get investment gets stronger. The chances of success are greater in those that achieve investment, which gives more confidence to the market and actually provides more benefit downstream. So actually, I see the benefits of this going far beyond just a, a nice checklist for entrepreneurs. I think actually there's plenty of people across the ecosystem that can use this to strengthen what we've actually got here as a full pathway and ecosystem. I think that's why it's quite reassuring to me, uh, James, is that there are market forces. So compared to two years ago, there are significant, very strong market forces that are pushing health tech companies and uh, VCs to really do the right thing. And to really not just just cowboy themselves, web an app, smack it on the app store. It's more about okay, right? We got to do things properly, you know, or we're not going to get adoption. We're not going to get funding, um, and that that's very reassuring. And that that, that gives kind of creates a whole market of itself because then suddenly they will need a lot of clinicians. They will need a lot of clinical collaborations. They need people who can understand regulations and, and go through that two hundred steps. So, you know a new business opportunities are suddenly just surfaced by itself because of the market factor. So, you know, interesting times. I think it actually removes the naivety as well around the resource required as well, because I think quite a lot of 
uh, in, well, individuals or entrepreneurs or small startup teams might have quite a lot of uh, assumptions about how quickly, how easily, or indeed how difficult all the rest of getting to market is. And actually, this just firmly smacks people in the face of this is how much it's going to cost. You could quite easily, in fact, in fact, a nice piece of work for somebody might be to just attribute a cost to each of those steps calculated by the number of hours it requires by, you know, the seniority of those involved in that step. And I think you could come up with a minimum amount of investment required to build an essay, not even to build, actually, that's that's more the dev side, but to just get through what you need to get through, there's a minimum cost here. And actually, if if you know if you're an investor, you can figure that out. It's a nice piece of work to have IP around. If you put the, in fact, if you're in, if if I was a VC now that had a portfolio of health tech companies, I would ask them all how how much each of those steps cost them, and I would just have a minimum cost. And then anyone coming to me asking for an amount below that, you just immediately discount as just you don't know what you're talking about because you haven't done the research, you don't know what's actually required. And then actually you can start testing assumptions around that. You can actually more tangibly think about how they're going to spend that X amount of million that they're going to have. And like, I don't know, I think that's I think that's an interesting piece of work because that, that, that's immediately where my mind goes to, even when you, know, you think of our clients and you think about their runways and you think about how much they're spending on marketing versus how much they're spending on all this stuff. You start to, I, I started to do those calculations of like, hmm, what do I, my projection should be with some X, you know, <laughs> like it's interesting. I um, that's, that's actually, James, you... Uh, so that's kind of what I'm literally trying to do right now. You've seen I produce a lot of LinkedIn carousels now these days with these fancy little color schemes and stuff like that. Seems to be quite well received. We love it, Derek. We love it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'm very pleasantly surprised. I didn't know people actually wanted this kind of content. So I just started churning up, churning them up. But really, uh, I'm going to do carousels on regulations, uh, regulatory pathways, getting it regulated. Uh, getting a UKC marking and stuff. And I do want to do something about this as well because, you know, artificial intelligence is ultimately my passion. But I kind of want to do it. I want to make it in a nicer to read, easy to understand the digest format so someone can just look at this PDF and just like, ha PDF. And as you said, maybe this is a great idea, actually, James, to see actually what's the actual cost of each thing. And that's questions I've been asking people like Hugh Harvey. Like, uh, how much does it cost to go through that? the class 2A process. And I'm speaking to people like Prova Health as well, who are, who are evident generation bosses in this field. Like, how much does it cost? And, uh, oh, the, the numbers ain't pretty. The numbers ain't pretty at all. You know, even a simple quality improvement project might take twenty to 50,000. Uh, a full clinical trial might take up to a million, a million to 1.5 million. I'm like, oh, God damn, that's not, that's serious money right there. So, a lot of strategy. If you're gonna do it, you gotta do. It. You gotta make sure that this is definitely something you want to do, and you don't put all your eggs in one basket and commit five million dollars and then just completely crash and burn. <laughs> so um, a lot more, a lot more deliberation and careful consideration is needed, and that's why that's that, that's the purpose of writing the carousels. Take a, it takes a lot of time to do one though. So <laughs> nice. Well, it's an important topic, so keep doing those carousels. And I think this is a conversation that we'll be continuing to have for a long, long time. Um, but it sounds like, you know, it's a really positive step forward. And as James said, some really practical and useful guidance at last that provides a bit of clarity for those who are going on that journey. Story number three. 
Federated Data Platform Procurement. What questions should NHS England be asking? Now, this story is an overview of a paper that was published by the Faculty of Clinical Informatics, which in itself for me is a little bit of a throwback because I was actually involved in the setting up of the Faculty of Clinical Informatics a long time ago. Um, And I find it incredibly interesting, actually, that um, I know the Federated Data Platform procurement process has received a fair amount of criticism already so far, but it sounds like this review is pretty scathing, actually. And given that I was involved in the Faculty of Clinical Informatics from my role at the Royal College of Physicians, LM and Health Informatics Unit there and and their collaboration with the Royal College of General Practice. Um, And ultimately, you know, this is a review that's come from that organization. Um, And what it does is it, it, it outlines concerns about those proposals, the costs associated with the procurement so far, um, which already appear to be pretty high. And also it goes on to talk about data access and oversight, and in particular, two groups that already exist. So the independent group advising on the release of data, which was established by NHS Digital to provide independent advice and recommendations on how patient data can be released into secure environments for research, audit and planning purposes, and also the professional advisory group for GP data. Um, And what it says is that there's there's real uncertainty around the future of those two groups in the context of the federated data platform. Um, And that that oversight and independent scrutiny is still going to be required here, but it's not clear what that could or should look like. particularly in terms of assessing the risks and benefits of the project. Yeah, it sounds like there's some real challenges that have kind of come through in this. So, Hugh, Derek, what what do you think about this one? Well, I guess this is the, the, Palantir, the Palantir UK Consortium um, scandal that has been going on for quite a few months now, since January. And we know that the UK consortium, which is the amalgamation of four different companies that are currently serving in UK, well, they failed, they failed in their bid already. And right now, the front runner is still Palantir. I think there's data is a is data is a it's quite a big topic. You know, we have the NHS has been hacked multiple times, and our NHS emails have been hacked multiple times, and are getting scam calls every other day uh, because of that. And there is some real concerns where when we are when we are giving full access, unmitigated access to a, a separate company to do all our data, all our data mining and all our data centralization, uh, especially when it comes to patient data. There's a lot of concerns that this can be misused. There's a lot of concerns that if we if we sign this contract, we're kind of locked in for three to five years. And that's a lot of money committed as well. Now, just I think, just harking back into why do we even need a federated data platform in the first place? And I think there's a lot of reasons why uh, an FDP is is actually quite crucial in the current in the current environment. We need it because we have a lot of data silos in the NHS. Uh, within a health board, there's five different systems that contains all the different data points, and to just even get 
I'm trying to understand what's going to happen next week. You have to pull up data manually to, to try to see, okay, we need to plan for staff shortages next week, or we need to plan for increased bid pressures next week. How do we, how do we tailor our, our boots on the ground to adapt to this to these problems? We simply do not have a lot of this data. And we know Palantir was working hand in hand with NHS England for the COVID-19 response. So crushing off this data silos and unification of data is a good thing. It's, it's very important. And the, uh, the, the very positive consequence from this is a lot of artificial intelligence research can then happen because artificial intelligence feed on data. Without a, a steady data stream, without, without an easy way to access all this data that are hidden away in thousands of data silos, uh, AI just can't, there's just no hope to talk about AI at all. So yes, there is a need for an FTP. There is a real crucial need, according to the white paper from the NHS, from the UK government as well. I guess the criticism that's being leveled up again is that the entire procurement process seems incredibly shady. <laughs> and everyone's just saying, like, is this one of those old boys club kind of thing where someone's lining up someone's pocket and uh, someone's getting a sweet end of the deal and that's why they're pushing through this? Is, some, is there some cronism going on here? It's a very easy story and a very easy narrative to sling. And we, we simply do not know is this uh, warranted or not or justified or not. However, I think the, the Royal College of General Physician and the the Faculty of Clinical Informatics have raised some very good points in this this article, this fourteen-page paper that they put out, and they have some very good questions. So I think I think Palantir and also the government has to be quite transparent and quite honest about this entire process, or they're just going to have a big, big, big scandal again, and everyone's just going to be unhappy. It's better to just let everyone know straight up. Okay, this is how it's going to be. This is why we're doing things. And I think once that communication comes true, people will be able to swallow that pill a bit better. Or you, or you will be looking at lawsuits upon lawsuits, the UK consortium suing the government for this thing, and it's just, it's just a whole mess. I completely agree. And it, it's one of those things, this is one of those projects that, it's been the project that refuses to go away, hasn't it, for the last couple of years now. And, and there's a lot of controversy in the kind of more national media about Palantir and it's you know how has has this been done I don't think there's anything shady going on if I'm really very honest it's I, I think you know along with the question of is it needed I mean definitely it's it's something similar is needed in any way to make a lot of the actual promises from government from DHSC on data on the use of digital in health actually come to a fore at a national level it's it's something like this is absolutely essential for me, the problem here is government procurement generally. I don't think there's shady things going on here. I don't think there are there are you know cronyism. I don't think anyone's getting their pockets lined. I think it's you know simply looking at how government procurement works and looking at the you know a company like Palantir that or a company like any of the big you know bigger companies out there that can afford to work for a certain amount of time for free can come in and say, oh, well, we can. We, in an emergency and say, we can solve your problem for you for free. And they did that during the um, pandemic. Um, they came in and they solved um, a lot of problems and earned a lot of goodwill. And while at the same time as earning a lot of goodwill, they earned a really valuable use case for projects like this, which is what procurement is based on. Because when it comes to all of the tenders that will have gone out for this, they will all be scored on how, on their experience. You know, I, I, they're all marked on a percentage and there will be 
a key sector in the tender that says, what is your company's experience in delivering projects exactly like this? And they'll be able to point to the ones that they did for free for us as a a government. And that's really valuable. It does mean that it probably makes it a bit harder for the UK alternative, the the consortium to come in and and do similar. But I think that's, that's the real challenge here. And I think it makes it all a lot harder to argue against from a moral, ethical, cronyism perspective than some of the national takes on it have, have made out. But um, yeah, that's that's where I think some of the, the challenges are coming in. Yeah, and I think f- fundamentally it does all seem to come down to transparency. And, you know, common sense would say that with everything that's happened, surely there is not anything underhand going on here because that would result in revolt and rioting in the streets, I'm sure. And so I, I, I'm I'm of a similar belief. And actually, you know, to, to go even further, I have been in and around conversations with people who have been involved in this process. I, I don't actually think there's anything underhand going on. It actually does sound like they are opening it up to multiple, play, multiple players of multiple sizes. And I think it's because the data issue is, is such a hot topic and a risky topic, like, right now and and has been for some time i think i think it's nervousness more than anything else but it strikes me that they are going to have to be more forthcoming in what has happened so far and what happens next in the relatively near future um and what i will also say about palantir is you know i actually think they get a relatively bad rap on the basis that yes they have not like there have been things that have gone wrong and, you know, some real misgivings there. But actually, and I say this, by the way, I don't work with Palantir in any way, shape or form. Um, but I I do think that, you know, they, to your point, you, you know, they did a big, big project for free. And, you know, there are many things that I'm sure you can kind of say about that. But there are some great things that they are also doing. That is not to say that they should be the only ones who are, should be able to compete for these kinds of um, contracts. And and, and truly, honestly, I actually don't think it's a case of that that happening anyway. It it sounds like it is a much more evenly spread and I want to say democratic process on the basis that I'm hearing from companies of all sizes who have been involved in this process. And it's a really positive sentiment. People are excited about it. Those who have been involved in those conversations and involved in that process, they sound very optimistic about what is going on and what's happening. I'm not getting negative vibes from people who I know have have had direct experiences. I think it's absolutely right that we should be challenging where appropriate, and this is appropriate. Um, And I do think that there has to be some a very intentional communications around all of this to put people's minds at rest. Because ultimately, as I said, if they get this wrong and there is any way that someone could join the dots back to foul play, we're in real trouble. And actually what that does for the NHS for healthcare is quite terrifying because data is such an important part of this of of healthcare and the way we engage with health services and the way that medicines are made and the way that we train algorithms for you know as we've just talked about 
AI in healthcare and all of those kinds of things, the, the repercussions are, are quite significant if we if we don't get this right. So, yeah, I, I just think it'll be all right on the night. But ultimately, let's really focus on that transparency. But yeah, just like stop being scared of telling people what's actually going on. And I think that ultimately is, as you say, Hugh, you know, it's a reflection of government procurement, but it's also a reflection of public sector organisations and and government organisations. They're very shrouded in mystery and, you know, understandably for, for, for many great reasons, but we need to see more of what's going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And I think one last thing I can say about this is, well, I'm a cancer doctor. Uh, cancer is an incredibly scary thing. It's shrouded in mystery. There's a lot of fear of the unknown. We do some very, very aggressive things for some patients in the, in the hope to try to cure them with the cancer. We smack them with chemotherapy. We give them radiotherapy. We give them some drug that doesn't even have a name, SD7876. And a lot of this can have very real implications in someone's life and also in their family member's life. And oftentimes... It's, it's much better to be very clear and honest and communicate very clearly and gently. Just saying, you know what, this is what we're going to do. It's a terrible situation. It's scary. Uh, these are the chemotherapy drugs. It will make you feel crap. It will make you feel unwell. But we are here throughout every single step of your way. We will help you. If there's something, if problems occur, don't worry. We are here. We'll help you through that process. And yes, it may succeed. It may not work. But let's do this together. And I think it's a matter of communication, which is amazing because SOMX is a communication company. Um, it's just putting across the, the communication very clearly to everyone and say, this is what we're doing. We're transparent. And so in case things were to go not well in the future, at least people will have some understanding and some expectations put in place. I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, when you talk about technology and data, it's really easy to lose sight of the human story and human impact. And I think, you know, ultimately, if we can all be grounded in that and remind ourselves of that as an industry, us, I think, you know, and I talk about the people who are, you know, involved in in the um, FDP as well. I think, it, I don't know, we'll, we'll be all the better for it um, in terms of recognising the consequences of getting something wrong, um, but also the motivation for getting something right. Yeah. And understanding that there are there are real people on the other side of these numbers these data points and that really matters yeah sounds like they need to hire somex to get their communication (laughs) (laughs) maybe 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 you know you know where to find us (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah exactly well it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on board today. Thank you so much. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. But yeah, thank you for joining us. And before yeah. we finish, would you like to share a little bit about what you're up to at the moment, Adopt a Doc, how that is transforming <laughs> health tech? Tell our listeners well, what you're up to. Well, so <laughs> I'm actually creating a carousel for that. <laughs> I, I, mean, I was literally doing the carousel right before, the, uh, one minute before the phone call. Uh, so Adopt a Dog is really just a simple idea. It's, it, it's really born out of an understanding that either we have to collaborate to build better tools for healthcare or we are collect- collectively screwed. <laughs> Doctors understand what's going on in the field, nurses, pharmacists, healthcare professionals understand what the challenges are going on in the field. We want to help, but we don't have the skills to do that. 
We don't have the technical skills. We don't have the AI skills. We don't have the business and commercial skills as well. And that's just reality. But however, there's, there exists a huge subset of people that have those skills, but don't understand what's going on in the medical field. So we end up with this huge mismatch of people doing some great work here, and but it can't commercialize. And there are people who are doing great commercial work, but just cannot get any medical collaboration at all. And I've just been doing lots and lots of pro bono consultations, by the way. I've done 29 in three months. and almost dying dying for them. <laughs> uh, You've been busy. How do you find the time? Uh, just sheer just sheer passion and sheer sheer curiosity. And just really talking Good to lots of you. people. It's a, it's a huge this this is a human problem. It's a human thing. It's not something that we can solve with tech. I think ultimately for collaboration to happen, people have to just talk to people. People have to be people have to be less afraid that okay there's this this nice bunch of people here. Let's have a chat with them. Have an open conversation and let's see where we can go from here. And I've been getting some very good feedback as well. So we are slowly building up a, a team. We're currently a team of seven. Uh, we're not incorporated yet, just, just so you know. We're just really existing as a social organization for now. Uh, however, having conversations with other consulting groups to see if there's any real synergies that can happen. Uh, if, ultimately, talking about monetization in the future. But uh, right now, I think the mission is simple. Connecting the people, the innovators with the healthcare professionals so that we can make some beautiful music together and stop wasting money which we cannot simply afford to afford anymore. We need, to, we need to put together the real human effort and the real cash in the places that really matters. So that's the hope, that's the dream. And uh, that's where I'm working towards the next few months. Oh, good for you. And based on our conversations today, it sounds like there is a huge demand for it. Um, and even if people don't totally recognize that right now, they will very, very soon. All right. Well, that is it for this week on the Health Tech Pigeon podcast. Thank you for joining us and we will see you all next week.